Hey everybody, what's up? It's Chase. Welcome to another episode of the show. That's right, the Chase Jarvis Live Show here on Creative Live. My favorite day is here, and that's the day where I get to record the intros to the show because what it does is it gets me really excited for what you're about to hear. Today's show is right in the sweet spot. Um, it's not a long-form interview with a game-changing individual. It's not a micro show where I give you one piece of personal advice and go deep on that. This is, in fact, uh, a keynote of sorts from the Seattle Interactive Conference that took place not too long ago. Um, but it's a little bit different, and I say a little bit more powerful because it's a conversation between myself and another other highly creative individual, a dear friend of mine named Cal McAllister. Uh, now, Cal is has a, is a legendary uh, creative in the creative industry. He has written as a copywriter for the biggest brands on the planet and then started his own agency, a remarkable agency called the Wexley School for Girls. I, I, I shot many campaigns with them, did all kinds of cool stuff with brands like Microsoft and Naked Juice and Pepsi and um, incredibly creative outfit. Um, and what... Cal, Cal is uh, not only just an inspirational figure, but he and I are good friends. So I think there's a really good chemistry on stage. And in this way, it's not just me trying to, to inspire and or add value to you. There's another uh, person who's very uh, community oriented. Um, he was the one who dragged me into this talk, connecting me with the Seattle Interactive folks. Um, we cover a ton of ground as uh, I, I try to in these talks. So it's not just one particular topic. And in this case, a conversation. We start out a little bit about Seattle. Uh, Cal laments a little bit about what's happening to, you know, because Seattle's the fastest growing city in the country right now. Um, but, but fear not, we quickly move away from that. And it's not really about Seattle. It's very, very focused on the creator and the entrepreneur. Uh, in all of us. We talk about <clears throat> the other 50%. We talk about community, why that's key. And and I, I made a funny comment in there that is striking me now as relevant. It's like, I was only on stage because there were people who were willing to listen. And uh, the people who were showing up there were only showing up there to hear people on stage. And that's not dissimilar to the arrangement that we've got right here while I'm in your ears. So uh, again, we talk about this community. We talk about how we're all in it together. And whether you consider yourself an introvert or extrovert, totally doesn't matter that there are things we can do participating. Uh, you know, my rant about the other 50%. Um, take a bunch of great questions from the audience. Uh, I was inspired by a lot of the questions talking about how to find time. You know, there's one thing that we all have that's a, the ultimate limited resource, which is time. Um, and I don't know a single creator or entrepreneur that says, you know what, I've, I've got way too much time on my hands. So we talk a little bit about that. That's kind of tactical. Um, Another concept I'm very fond of, which is staying the hell out of the middle, um, where the best stuff happens at both ends of the spectrum, and what you can do to to stay out of that beige, boring middle, because I think that is um, in a sea of a lot of uh, information out there on the internet. You've seen your phone lately, right? There's a lot of a lot of available information. How do you not just get ground up in the middle by all of that beige shit? Cal also introduces an amazing concept called the creative cockroach. Doesn't sound all that flattering, but what if we thought of ourselves, our creator and this maker community that we're all a part of, like cockroaches, like we are not going anywhere. We have the most stamina. We've been here for millions of years and we're going to continue. We're going to wait out any drought. We're going to play through any economic downturn. What if it's about not just... Um, 
what you're going to do tomorrow, about, but about being in it for the long game. Uh, <laughs> it's a fantastic concept that we get to go deep on. Uh, we talk a lot about pricing and, and how free or full price, how I hate that beige middle, not dissimilar to that other point that I just introduced, and more. So with that, I hope you enjoy not just myself, but myself plus Mr. Cal McAllister in your ears today. Enjoy it. And I'm looking forward to hearing what you think. Please shout out on the internet. Screen cap whatever you're listening to. I will share that on my my social feeds, etc. Looking forward to hearing your feedback. And without further ado, I'm going to get out of the way. But before we do, dot, 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 just a quick word from our sponsor. Check this out, y'all. This episode of the Chase Jarvis Live show is sponsored by Creative Life for Business. This is different than the regular old Creative Live. So whether you love, passionately love where you work, or it's sort of like meh, or on the other side, if, if it's a creative wasteland and you want to inspire some change in the place that you work, you're not alone. Studies say that three out of four people, that's right, 75% of people say they're not living up to their creative potential at work. If so, I want to introduce you to Creative Live's newest product. It's called Creative Live for Business. And in a nutshell, it's a way to get access to all of Creative Live's content for your entire team and or entire company and maybe bring in some much needed energy and innovation to that team or company simply by going to creativelive.com slash teams. Now, Creative Live for Business is already in service of several of the top creative firms on the planet and a powerhouse list of many of the Fortune 100 top brands. These brands care about creativity and innovation. And you know what? These companies pay for this for their employees. So it doesn't matter if you're a team of five people, 55, or, or if there's 50,000 people in the company. If this sounds interesting to you and you wanna check it out, either you can check it out or refer your boss to Creative Live by sending them to creativelive.com teams. Remember, the most forward-thinking companies, they prioritize things like creative skills, like design thinking, leadership, collaboration, wellness. And again, with Creative Live for Business, you get access to all that taught by some of the top instructors in the world on Creative Live. So again, you can visit or send your boss a link to creativelive.com slash teams to learn more. First of all, I think the, the goal here is value and you know, we know a little bit about y'all just by the demographics and the makeup of the, the conference, but it's really important for me. The only reason I'm here is because you're here. If there, no one showed up, I wouldn't show up. And so I think if we're setting up that dynamic, when Cal reached out and said, you want to do something, I was like, of course. Uh, so what we're aspiring to do here is tackle a, tough, a couple of tough questions that either get asked of us a lot or aren't asked but should be asked. Um, so I think we wanted to start off with some of that stuff, but it's important I don't know, I think it's important to both of us that um, if you have questions and problems, you think of them because we wanna dedicate at least 20 minutes to Q&A and these are hard problems, not like, who's your inspiration? That's fine, I'm happy to answer that, but if you have like, I'm an early stage startup, me and my co-founder don't get along and my venture just left, what do we do? Like something that's, that um, is like that and, and definitely we'll go to the B-side thing afterwards. So. For sure. Awesome. Take it away. Yeah, that's, uh, it's really important for both of us. Chase and I have been friends for uh, 10, 15 years now, I think. Uh, and Chase has been an inspiration for me. I've uh, tried to be an inspiration for him. We bounce ideas off each other. And the idea of what we're doing here, as he mentioned, is 
Uh, we really want to turn this over to you guys uh, after we'll answer. There were, there were some things that came to us uh, over the last several days, some things that we're going to address about, uh, about creativity and uh, about execution. So we're going to get into that. But if you could be noodling now on some of the bigger problems that we can, that we can pick with about 20 minutes left and, and start addressing those things. Uh, I kind of wanted to start by uh, just talking a little bit about the State of the Union of Creativity here in Seattle. Uh, and this is the part where I'm going to probably sound a little bit like a bitch because um, creativity is, is incredibly important to me. It's incredibly important to Chase. It's incredibly important to probably uh, everybody in this room. I think that the problem that I'm seeing now that uh, we've closed Wexley and I'm, I'm traveling around and looking how other cities and other places handle creativity is I'm hugely disappointed with the demand we as consumers put forth, not in marketing and advertising, but in creative execution in the city in general. I'm heartbroken that there's even a discussion about the show box. Uh, I'm furious that there's a combination of a mixed-use, thoughtless architecture, four-story Panera bread condo that's taken over my favorite places in Capitol Hill. And, and I think that we just need to be really thoughtful uh, and demand higher standards. We should be insulted. Uh, we should feel insulted when people do boring marketing for us, when people do boring advertising, when people do stupid messaging that just gets the point across. We should, be, we should not be a city that rests on our laurels, a city of consumers, a city that has this creative reputation, when right now I don't think that we're earning it. And I think that it's really disappointing to see the way things are being executed um, when there are people in this room and there are people with more resources than they've ever had to do interesting things and not get stuck somewhere in the, yeah, we answered it and, and we didn't do quite what we needed to or what we really wanted to execute. I'm not trying to come from a holier-than-thou space uh, by that at all and not saying that everything we did um, or continue to do or will do in the future is uh, exponentially creative. But at the same time, I think that we, probably because of the onslaught of information that we have all the time, uh, coming after us. I think that we have lowered our standards to an inexcusable level, and it's up to us to demand from the people that we work with and work for and work beside to sort of change that. And, and I think, as Chase and I were talking about this in the beginning and, and leading uh, into what we wanted to talk about, that's really the burr in my saddle right now. And, and I think they're good examples of that not happening and, and where we can really use things, even like Creative Live, it's a, it's a venue to really explore and to fail and to succeed again and to accomplish the first things we're going to do are going to be terrible. And then the first things I did were terrible. The first thing, I still do terrible things. But to continue to execute and continue to do interesting things. And I think that's uh, what I would add is that there is no they. There is only we. It's like you can point your finger at they as the city council or the developer or whatever, but that is, that's all of us. And it's, there's this sort of uh, an underpinning to, and, and you said we a couple times, like to me that's exciting that there's ownership and then there, the, um, we still have the ability to get involved. If you're in an underrepresented community, if you have ideas that, um, that are in your head and not being put on paper out into the world, who's that on? That's on you and by extension, we. So I think uh, to me that's an important uh, flag to put in the ground um, and just keep that in mind. Like I, to me, I, the, the only thing that I can't stand is cynicism like I've never fired anyone without talking to them about trans, like how helping people move and develop in their career unless they've been like really shitty and cynical like for too many times in a row. So it's really important that we're not coming from a place of cynicism here that then I just want to put the flag in, in we. Sorry. 
Yeah, I think that that is a big part of, of collaboration. Everything that we ever did at Wexley or that we're doing now at Paper Crane got better because people were involved in being thoughtful. And, and at Wexley, I saw, um, not often, but I saw how much more powerful no was than yes. And so I know improv is sort of a yes and thing, but I've never seen just two letters be so demotivating to people and, and hurt creativity, and whether it's coming from the client side or internally or even just ideas. Um, I think that that no is incredibly difficult, and we need to get past that no, and we need to encourage uh, even if we don't understand an idea, um, we probably don't, if someone is excited about an idea and we think that it's not a good idea, we probably don't understand it. Uh, if we could understand it a little bit better, maybe then we can judge, but if off the bat we don't like something, then we're in the wrong spot to be critical. No, we can't do that. Just isn't what this town is about. It's not what this community is about, and it's not what we can accomplish together. It's just a very different idea, I think, to approach, because I'm seeing a whole lot of no's and maybe's and execution all over the city. So one of the, right before we came on, uh, Cal asked me the question, uh, it was around what, it, what's, um, what are some of our biggest challenges? And, and I believe that there is a trend and I, have, I only can connect the dots looking backwards and Cal asked, what have I done that has helped fight against a trend of sort of mediocrity? And to be clear, we're all this, but when I look back at the career decisions that I've made or individual decisions on prod, projects or products, um, one really simple theme keeps coming up over and over. Uh, and what I call it, uh, I, well, actually, I'll tell you a little short story. Anybody here familiar with the Ace Hotel? Okay, great, show of hands, that's great. It's probably uh, half the folks here. It was a hotel chain that was started here. It was a chain of one at the beginning uh, by a dear friend of mine named Alex Calderwood, who's no longer with us. We'll, we'll park that for a different day or for the B-side conversation. Um, but Alex had a very simple vision. He took what was basically a rooming house down on first or second, uh, and in part invented shabby chic, painted everything on the inside of it white, put some really great furniture, and created a hotel that was for him and his friends and the people that were coming through Seattle. He was, um, he was doing a lot of uh, interactive programming and, and um, just creative work around a couple of different agencies. And the Ace Hotel has, has been something that's inspirational to me. He went on to do one in Portland and then one in New York, and now there's about eight or 12 around. There's Pittsburgh and Panama and London, and, and there's a handful of others. And it, essentially what Alex did is reinvent the hotel game. If you've been to the Ace Hotel in New York, there's one big room, and in that room at any one time, again, name droppy aside, you could see sort of, uh, I remember one particular day sitting there having oatmeal, uh, Zuckerberg walked out of the elevator. I was looking at Malcolm Gladwell, who's typing his next album. Uh, Questlove was ordering coffee, and it was just all in one big room. And in the morning, it was coffee, and if you came here in the evening and afternoon, the Roots was the house band. So there's this mashup of culture, which I thought was really, really powerful. And to tie this back to my point, you're like, okay, why are you going on this thing about the Ace Hotel? I have had a thing, which is the middle is deadly. And the middle is beige, and it's where the worst work happens, and the best work happens on the outskirts, happens on the fringe. What I mean by that is low budget, high return, things that you can actually feel that have a ton of grit, and something on the other end which is wildly polished and beautiful. This is gritty. You can walk into any room, like at a pop-up, and it, if it feels um, small and gritty, but for a, a small uh, or a, a bunch of highly committed people who did a lot with a small budget, how does that feel? That feels fucking awesome. 
because you can feel the creativity. You see there were some constraints and you saw what, what, what was created. It doesn't have to be on a billboard. It doesn't have to be this, this idea of scale. Uh, and I think that is something I want to put a pin in and then go to the other end of the spectrum. When you do something truly at scale that is beautiful and does affect millions of people and is with the big budget, those are where the best things happen. And what we believe, or what I believe too often, and it just because it's a little bit of a rut, is that you, you get, you're a cork in the tide rather than being intentional and going to one of those two directions. And in the middle is beige. In the middle is designed by a community. In the middle is an average budget. In the middle is sort of an okay spend with a, not that big of an influencer. With the, like, it's all of the stuff that's in the middle. And that's where, to be clear, that's where 90% of stuff is. And so as I look back, the last conversation I had with Alex before he passed away, he was asking me a little bit about, it, it was a really similar question to what Cal asked me before we came on the stage. He said, I see you're doing this, and it doesn't look like you have any budget, and, but there's a lot of highly committed, passionate people around it, and then I saw that campaign that you did for Samsung or whatever. And I, I explained this to him, and he said to me, that is why the Ace Hotel is called the Ace Hotel because the ace is simultaneously the low card and the high card in any deck. And it like, it, it like catapulted me to a different place. I was like, oh shit, that was like the best explanation ever. It would have taken me 10 seconds instead of it took me 20 years to figure out what Alex, <laughs> what Alex knew. And so as I look at uh, a lot of what Seattle has historically been able to own, it's been in both those buckets and never in the middle. And so I asked a question back to Cal that I'm going to ask right now, which is you recently shut down Wexy School for Girls. Why did you do that? <laughs> I know there's some familiar faces in here. I'd like to have the security make their way closer. Uh, <clears throat> uh, well, it's a lot, of what we, a lot of what we talked about, and it's a lot of... Uh, it's a lot of what I built with my, uh, with my partners that was, that was going the wrong direction. So as you were talking about, as we've been talking about the middle being this no man's land, I think one of the obvious things that, that showed up when we were, were trying to figure out what to do with Wexley was uh, the middle was not collaboration, the middle was compromise. And in almost any negotiation, if everyone leaves unhappy and they say that's a good negotiation, that's not a good creative execution. Yeah. And there were a couple, a couple key factors of, of why we decided that, um, and uh, it was the most heartbreaking decision uh, to do for sure. But there were a couple factors. Uh, one was everything was built around the billable hour. And, and that was how we designed to do it. We intended years ago to be an agency that uh, would survive with large, with big retainer clients, and we could staff around it. Um, Billable Hour is not built for small companies and innovative companies to be successful. It just isn't, because the retainer model is not something that they can do. The Billable Hour uh, may be oversimplified, but not really. The first 30 or 40 percent is going to cover that billable person's salary. The next 30 or 40 percent is going to cover uh, the overhead in your health care. And the only place the agency makes a profit is in that last 25 or so percent. So the only way that we could grow as a business was to hire more people uh, or to have jobs take longer. And I was not on very many phone calls with our clients that said, here's what I need you to do. 
I want a 13th person on this conference call, and I want this to last a lot longer so we can pay you more to do it. Unusual to hear that. And, uh, <laughs> Said no one ever. <laughs> yeah, that's not. So, and I'm, a, you know, I'm obviously a genius businessman, so I identified that. Um, the, the second thing was uh, that opportunities, especially with some of our larger clients, were, were coming to us with what our clients already thought were solutions. So they had the media picked, which was often in their own, uh, in their own ecosystem. Uh, they had the messaging largely solved. We had an incredibly strong strategy department. I think we had the deepest creative bench of any agency in town. I'm super proud of the work and the people that we had. But, but looking over the hill and what we saw, the opportunities weren't going to be what we built our reputation on and really why people came to us. So in some ways, uh, it looks like a midlife crisis probably <laughs> because uh, we make this, this decision that was very difficult uh, for the 40 people that we had and, uh, and we were thoughtful about helping them find other places. But I think the thing about the midlife crisis, which is largely miscast, is it's really that you can see over the hill and you, you can see how things play out. And I was looking at uh, the opportunities that were happening on the, on the client side within their internal creative departments. Uh, I was looking at the assignments that we were getting. I was looking at the billable hour model. And I didn't see, and as a group, we didn't see a path to be successful continuing to do the kind of work that we wanted to do. And we were being pushed more and more towards the middle, and we needed to work very hard to do something completely different than, uh, completely different than what we had been doing and the way that we were doing it. And instead of trying to fix it, which would have been retraining all of our clients and truly trying to change the mindset of how this town works, um, it was easier to just start over and do something, do something different. So summary, the middle is toxic as hell. <laughs> and designed by, uh, you, you know all the, the adages like the design by committee, you know, never gets the best stuff. But you said something in there that I was hoping we could shift gears into, and that's yeah. mindset. Yeah. And you go back to sort of there is no they, there's only we. Uh, which I believe deeply, whether that's your company, whether that's your team within a company, whether that's your city, there is no they, there's only we. And yet we consistently find ourselves not in, the right, not in that mindset. Yeah. So there's a, there's a chicken and egg problem. Uh, and to me, there are two things that work simultaneously. I'd like to hear you talk about this. Two, or yeah, number one would be the willing and consistent desire to outlast everyone else. To, it stand, to me, stamina is probably the, the number one thing. It's like, oh, how'd you do that? I, uh, I'm gonna name drop again. I was with Al Gore last week in New York, and he said, he was asking me a question about Creative Live, and, uh, and then he said, he said how'd, how'd it feel to build that? And I was like, oh, that was really cool. And he said, you know what it really adds up to? And he said this from the stage a few minutes later is deciding which wall you're willing to bash your head on the longest. To me, that's, that is a little, it, it paints, again, a, a picture of pain and misery, but there's so much involved in outlasting uh, either the competition, your feelings around the project, uh, the, the, I don't know, I'll just leave it those two things. So that's thing one, yeah. is sort of stamina. And, and a corollary to that, um, which I wanted to get your take on is well, let's take, let's just go that like talk to me about stamina in your career and how that's helped and has it ever hurt? 
I don't know why I'm asking know. him questions. We're just we're friends. This is like yeah, us having beers just up a conversation. here. And uh, ben, we, we need to go to you shortly. So, what are your biggest problems? Think about yeah. that. But I don't I don't know that it ever that it ever hurt. Um, I learned a lot from Tracy Wong, who is uh, who runs uh, Wong Duty, and uh, he basically, like Alex Bogusky, um, another titan of the industry, said, "You just need to be a ninja. You need to not care when your ideas die." You need to work harder and exhaust your client until they basically just give up and let you do something interesting. <laughs> and and I, th I think that there is a, a lot to that. I think that when you come back with an idea that's stronger and you show that you're just not going away, that's really where great creativity and great execution happens. That you can't be beaten down and it sucks. Like it's difficult to hear ideas die for the same and different reasons multiple times and uh, even from the same people and changes of directions. Um, but, but that's what we signed up for in any profession. That's what you signed up for in architecture. It's what you signed up for in marketing and advertising. It's what you signed up for in photography. It's what you signed up for when you decided to commit your life to creativity and executing using that creativity. This is what you signed up for. So you need to not be the fastest, but faster than the person who is going to get eaten by the bear and just be tireless with your ideas. And that stamina, I think, is if you look at the most successful creative people, musicians, uh, people in our industry, they're the ones that you just can't kill. I mean, we're just creative cockroaches. Yeah. And you just have to continue with that stamina uh, and know when you're exhausted. That is the most tweetable thing you'll hear at this thing. <laughs> we are all just creative cockroaches. <laughs> and if we're not, we should be. Right now, there's 10 people tweeting. Thank you very much. Um, you can say I phrased it. You could attribute it to him, but somehow get me in on the tweet if you can. Um, Hashtag. Hashtag yeah. Chase. So uh, well, my philosophy, from photographically speaking, was always to, they have an idea. And you go out to execute this idea. You, you have all, always have some next level thing in your back pocket. And this is whether it's at a meeting or it's in the campaign or like you have your zhuzh, your special sauce. And in a world where, if you go back to we're trying to stay out of the middle and the client's constantly dragging you to the middle because there's these things called best practices, which are fucking terrible by and large. So they're dragging you in the middle. They're trying to get designed by community. And to me, the best things happen when you actually, you, in your case, you might be able to talk them out of that or... Um, or just continue to be persistent and press. There's another great technique, and this is if, for, if you're a freelancer um, or maybe even within your team, is do the thing at the level that they wanted you to do it, deliver that thing, and they're gonna go awesome. So photographically, that's like you get the shot that was on the brief in the can fast, and then you do your cool shit as a fast follow to that, sometimes when they don't expect it. So photographically, that means getting the thing that matches the sketch, which is the layout. You're like, oh, okay, great, cool. And like, I just got one other little idea. And then you go crazy doing that. And I got a lot of shit early in my career for doing things that were unpaid. And I think this is, you know, in the agency model, this is one of the reasons that this staffing issue that you talked about, because there's no extra capacity if you're getting billed by billable hours. And it's very hard to sell an idea after you've already had it approved, because what you had approved was something different. But to me, this is where the genius in 
anyone that I've ever seen and studied, and, and I think you, I would encourage you to deconstruct the most successful people and work that you see, who made it, how'd they make it, under what conditions, like literally deconstruct, because you don't have to touch the stove to know it's hot. You can ask someone who burnt the shit out of their hand. Okay, so deconstruct, and anytime I've ever deconstructed, there was this consistent thing of doing something that was either not paid or not fairly compensated to show them. Because what's that one saying? A prototype is worth a thousand meetings. <laughs> so showing them something that is actually incredible. You, you, you do the thing that that's expected, and then you're like, how about this? Is this interesting? And then usually you see this like, and that's how you, even if you don't get it in this project, you get it in the next project. So that's a sort of, a, I think, a piece of advice that you didn't ask for, but I get asked a lot. And I think it helps keep you out of the middle. And it, it also goes towards that, there's a stamina thing, because few other people are willing to do that kind of work, either in unpaid or less than ideal wages. And you think you're, this is why I think um, free or full price never stay in the middle. Free or full price, and if it's like, oh, I don't, how much does it cost? 10 grand, oh, I only have six. Don't say, okay, say, all right, cool, I'll do it for zero, but I, ha I own the creative direction, and if you like it, use it great. Whatever, the, uh, I don't know. So the, the stamina thing, I think that's, um, I don't know anyone who has been successful over a sustained period of time. Let's just take a couple of other examples. Uh, I'm just gonna use Ben uh, McLemore. He was like, oh man, overnight success. That dude was making, base, making beats in his parents' basement for 10 years before anyone had ever heard of him. And there's this stamina thing. And there's a lot of other hip hop in Seattle that was, that had a ton of traction, that was definitely um, influential. There were people who were making their way out into the, the hip hop community globally that maybe, and maybe Ben wasn't, but Ben was always there. Yeah. So I don't know if that ladders up to some of the things you're thinking about with yeah, consistency. Yeah, it's totally, but. I don't know that there were any, that there really are any overnight successes. I mean. At Wexley, we enjoyed different periods of, of success, and we would be the flavor of the month for the different trade publications every once in a while. And we'd say, we've been doing this for 10 years. Uh, and it, it is, it was a lot of, and what we're trying to do now with the new company is, we've always looked for every opportunity to make uh, a creative, to use creativity to make an impression and to get a response. And that's where a lot of that free stuff comes in. And I mean, frankly, that's where, before, when Ian and I were at, at different agencies, we would come up with those kinds of ideas, and the, the agency just didn't have any idea how to bill it. Yeah. Like, how do you want me to bill a hot air balloon race? We sell TV commercials here. Yeah. So that was the idea to open Wexley, and uh, you will get famous on the fun and creative executions that you identify. Uh, we won the Sounders pitch in the room not because, uh, when we launched the Sounders with them, not because we had... Uh, scarves up and a, and a good idea of what to do with their billboards. We won the pitch because uh, I said I lived by Wrigley for five years and going to Cubs games wasn't organized, but it was the journey to get to the stadium was a big deal. What if we did a march to the match? And I wanted to start it at the market, um, but the mayor wouldn't let us do it. And we almost got arrested, but we did it down at Occidental Park. The whole reason we won the pitch was because of the march to the match. And they didn't pay us extra for that. They didn't assign that. It's because we looked at where fans of that brand, it's easy because it was a sports team, but where fans of that brand would look for opportunities to engage with that brand, and where we got to do interesting things and provide them with areas to really appreciate that the brand, regardless of whatever brand it was, invested in their 
most valuable asset, which is their time. So if we can invest in people's time and show them, give them a reward for that investment, that's where all those fun little interesting free things happen that then lead to people coming to you thinking that you're exceptionally good at solving creative problems. Awesome. So uh, we're getting sort of every 20 minutes are telling us how far along we are from the back of the room. And it was uh, our commitment to try and take some actual problems from actual humans. And, uh, and so at this point, I hope you've had a chance to think of a couple of things and maybe we've spurred a, a little um, spark somewhere. Does anyone have an actual like, problem that they would like us to try and solve in a short amount of time? What I find is if someone, in the particular lies of the universal, right? So if someone has a question, this is what I'm hoping, is that there are 10, people who actually, 10 or 20 other people who actually have that but are, are um, terrified to ask it. So There's right. a microphone for you. Yeah, there's a microphone. In, yeah. in the middle. Careful. So uh, I'm a freelance, I'm, I'm a writer, and uh, two years ago read the four-hour work week and quit my job, and now I've been working like 60 hours a week, and I feel very far away from writing, and I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm doing this wrong. Um, so I'm wondering how do you build a creative organization around a creative person in a way that insulates you to be able to do what you started out to do. It's like, I read the e-myth, and it's just like, no, you teach someone else to do it. I was like, no, that's not what I wanted. Like, I wanted to, but I basically want to figure out how to buy my time to be a writer and do creative projects that don't worry about how many clicks it's going to get, or like, be an artist, yeah. buy time to be an artist. How do you do that? That's a beautiful question. Thank you for asking it. There are at least 40 people who wanted to ask it, but are freaked out and scared, so nice job. <laughs> And yes, I would applaud you. So I'll tell Tim that you're pissed at his book, <laughs> first and foremost. Se tell, second tell of all, him, yeah. Tell him it's the farce. Yeah. Um, and Tim's one of the hardest working people I've ever met in my life, so this is, he, he's, this is not the first time he's heard this. Uh, I believe that craft is the first and foremost important thing that you get, that you do, that you know. Okay? Mastery is critical, but as soon as you have sort of put yourself on that path, it's everything else that actually is the differentiator. So I have a thing that I call, it's just a little pie chart, um, and part of it I call the other 50%. What we believe, and we're sold, and this is, well, I don't care if you're in, inside a company, you're a freelancer, whatever, we are sold that if you are the best at what you do, that someone will recognize you in X, Y, Z. And I'm saying, that's bullshit. Because we all know someone in high school or in college or at the agency or whatever that was so talented but didn't have their shit together, right? And I'm not saying this about you, but I'm saying that you were sold, you were sold a lie, and I'm sorry. We were also sold a lie about college, that if you go to college and get to school, you get a great job and everything can be fine. There's lots of lies that were sold. This is one. So instead of 50%, now we were told that your craft is everything. Your craft is 40% of it. And it's very helpful to be the best or be excellent, some sort of level of mastery. Then there's this 10%, which is you have to actually make noise for people to care. And this is the, one of the reasons that I started Creative Live is because I was really tired of beating my own chest. And even if you're good at that and standing out, you can't stand out and fit in at the same time. Okay? So you have to, with some part of your energy, be selling the shit that you're making. So that's half your pie chart. And you're like, well, I thought that was the whole pie chart. Remember, it was, you were first sold your craft, and I'm telling you, that's bullshit. There's this whole other thing. You have to promote the work that you do. 
Then there's this other 50%, which no one talks about, which is creating and cultivating community. When you launch an idea, this is, this is literally why I'm here, because eyeball to eyeball, face-to-face -face community, a lot of it can scale online, that's fantastic. But if you are not creating community, and by that I mean knowing a good copywriter, figuring out who can help you merchandise your stuff, all these other things that you've said you're not good at, you're cultivating community, and you do that by coming to things like this, you do that by how many people do you follow that you actually care about, and do you go there and just scroll their shit and troll it, or do you actually comment and be a part of their community such that when you meet me or we meet you in real life, you're like, hey, I'm Carrot Top 123. I'm like, oh my God, I've seen you in my feed for five years, and you're actually friends. Okay, this is the secret. And this is 50% of your energy. Nothing happens with that energy, okay, 50% of it. And it's not saying you're not doing work because there's really there's a lot of work to be done. But anytime I've sort of heard from someone that they can't make the thing work and I ask just two or three questions, to me, this other 50% is the place where we're all whiffing. So what are the pieces of your business that you're not great at? You don't just hand them to anybody. You have to know them and trust them and, and iterate quickly. But it's all this other shit. Okay, back to you, sir. <laughs> well, I think uh, Chase and I have thought uh, down similar paths uh, for years. So I hope this isn't redundant. But along those lines, one of the things that uh, took a while for me to learn was it's not about having somebody execute your vision because who wants to do that? It's about allowing people to interpret your vision, interpret how you would, they would do the things that you don't want to do and letting them work that way. I'm a huge, big, a huge collaboration fan, big fan of working together with people. Um, but I'm also a big fan of letting ideas get better because other people are involved. And that could be accounting. Our CFO was probably the most creative person in the building. Great appreciation for that. For creative uh, accounting, go figure. <laughs> the best kind of accounting there is. Uh, but, but I think that that's, that's making sure that, uh, that this, is a, this is a big drum circle, unless you're Steve Jobs and you want everybody to hate you even after your death. Um, it's really about letting people understand your vision and execute it how they would and trusting that you're creatively aligned. Yeah. Uh, I didn't, when Chase and I had projects, I didn't need to heavy hand and tell them what I needed to get out of the project. In fact, uh, the reason I work with other creatives is because they do what I respect and trust and admire and say, I just need it to be something kind of like this. And whether it's Chase or any of the bands that we work with, it's okay, I'll see you in a bit. <laughs> and the last point is that there are people who want, who love to do the shit that you hate as much as you love to do what you love. And the only way you find those people is by carrying all that energy out in the world because people who are awesome at accounting want to work with people who are awesome writers. And they want to do that billing for people that they care about. So how are you showing up? Thank you. Thank you guys so much. Yep. Hello. Uh, so I own a, a creative agency in Portland going into year six. What's your name? Uh, my name's Brian. Brian. Good to Companies, meet you, bud. Serenity Studios. Thank you. Um, and while we've had a lot of success, um, the thing that we're constantly fighting against is, uh, and this is partly a Portland thing, but uh, smaller budgets than we would like. And then also... That only happens in Portland, trust me. <laughs> 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 um, and, uh, and low client expectations, which as a double-edged sword, on one hand is like there's a lot of creative freedom. On the other hand, it's like we're constantly doing re-education. So it's like, wow, you, you think you want this. They see like an end product. And we're like, but 
really, there's this whole other thing that we want to talk to you about, and then we end up blowing them out of the water, but then it's like, okay, well, we need to find that next project now, because we're constantly doing more, because we want to do great work. So how do you do great work and stay sustainable and viable as a boutique agency? Hmm. Uh, it's why we closed. Um, it's incredibly difficult. It's nice when, when you're small. Um, it's nice when you're mid-sized, and it's nice when people come to you for the work that you do, because when you were small, you stuck to the gun, stuck to your guns, and you did what people expect of you. And we had clients uh, that came to us for an expect, a greater creative expectation. What worked for us a lot was to let our clients know that we were a really, really expensive Kinkos if that's how you're going to treat us, and it was true. Um, so. I didn't mean to be quite so morbid, but, um, but it's all about setting up your agency's brand, setting great examples, even if they're for free, of the creative work that people should be coming for you to do. Uh, and if the path is to just execute other people's vision and that's not the creative vision, then it's time for a, a very intentional and drastic business change. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll add one piece to that. I think the I don't think it was morbid, bro. <laughs> it's good. It's real. Kill, it's, it's like, no, it's real life. Uh, but I'll say another thing. It, the, I think you're pointing the finger somewhere else. And I think you need to point it back at yourself. And this is the tough love part of this equation. So thank you for those folks lined up. They're, they're sitting down yeah. now. They're done. <laughs> We're down to three people. No, and, and, and it's, in my belief, it takes the same amount of effort to hire or to, to find a, a $10,000 client as it does a $100,000 client. And in fact, the $10,000 client is usually more of a pain in the ass. So what are you signing up for? And everything that he said is still true. These, these both can be true. These, these, these statements can both be true. And what I'm going to ask is like, when you're saying like the clients out there, you're pretending like there aren't awesome clients out there. True. And they, they, they exist. They are hard to find. And the way that you will find them is by doing insanely creative work. And when they, they will come to you, but you probably won't get that stuff done by doing average work for a $10,000 client. This is why the smartest thing that I ever did was invest my own money in doing projects, book projects that took years building apps that kicked my ass, doing all this other stuff, because that's where all the best shit came through there. And if you're pointing to someone else thinking you're just going to go do the next client project and somewhere this magical unicorn client's going to ride out and give you a big gold bar, you're high. So, but the, the flip side of this is that you are in control of who you serve and who you don't. Go ahead and take a bunch of those $10,000 clients while you're lining this other one up because you've got to put food on the table. But don't point the finger at the clients that are out there. Point at your ability to go after them and to be really, really uh, aggressive with the work that you put in your own portfolio. Thanks. Appreciate it. Thanks, Brian. Hi, I'm Carissa. Um, that last question really answered mine. Uh, That's cool. Hang out here for a while. Yeah, That's I cool. Well, I have more questions. Good. Ironically, the condo I just moved into has beige walls. I'm working on it. <laughs> um, and I'm. Yes. Yeah. No more you. beige. <laughs> Screw that HOA. Yeah. Um, <laughs> 
So I'm a designer at a local agency, digital agency. We do all sorts of work. A lot of it is like high volume, really quick turn, bread and butter, great stuff. Yeah. Um, I'm, I get the privilege of working on some projects that are like higher profile and a little bit more investment, but we're still on these super tight timelines and it just doesn't make sense. Right now I'm in a beige project, my own fault, thank you, ownership. Um, so two questions. Is there any chance to salvage it right now? I'm like halfway through, might be just kind of like start again on the next one. No, um, do, do the thing that they expect and then have a, a B version that you're like, and just in case you want to do this, I just did twice as much work. Yes. And here's another thing. Okay. You can have either. Not both. <laughs> you can have either. I like that. <laughs> okay. Um, second question, how, do you have any advice for um, those of us who don't necessarily have a seat at the table during these scoping meetings and timelines to fight for our craft and say this actually is unrealistic expectations? and you're disrespecting my design process by shortening these timelines. Yeah, that's, that's a tough one, uh, always. Um, I think uh, I was always respectful of our, anybody at any role in the agency who saw that we were starting to mail it in and starting to put uh, starting to put, not doing what Chase said, starting to put the dollars first and let's move on. Now, I mentioned Tracy Wong before. He was a big proponent of, if they don't want it, get the shit done, ship it out and do better the next time. Um, and there are a lot of opportunities to do better the next time. I think that puts you in the wrong mindset for as much as I respect Tracy. I think that um, it was exhausting when I had great creatives come and show me, not philosophically, not whine and tell me, it's not what you're doing, but not whine and say, why can't we get any cool shit? It was, here's what they asked for, here's what, what we could do, and just sell it up internally. The seat at the table, you might be at the wrong place. Um, the nature of the business right now, we talked before this about wanting to make sure we didn't come across as holier-than-thou creatives that only get cherry-pick amazing assignments, because that's not what our life is like. I got bruises all over. Yeah, <laughs> continually. So that's not to say yeah, just look that gift horse in the mouth and, you know, go do something else because we're all getting, ultimately getting paid to make stuff up, which is a pretty good gig. So I think that it's exhaust your creative directors now with what we could do differently. And if, if they're tirelessly saying, yeah, but that's not what we do, that's not what we can do, that's not, they can say now is not the time once or twice I was allowed to do that, but every single time not being the time means that philosophically we're not aligned. And I think that you don't need a seat at the table as much as you need to be you know, in the back of someone's mind knowing that you're underutilized. I got two things to add to that. Thank you, that was brilliant. One is like, just do the same thing with your internal team, deliver the thing that they expect and deliver something at 10, and they'll watch you do that over and over. And they're like, wow, she's got it. We need, we need to bring her to the table by just by doing twice the work. And it's, 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 there's a ton of ethic in here, like worth ethic, just bash your head against the wall that I think by outworking other people, and I don't care where you do it, I'm not gonna talk philosophically about your kids and I only have to go to school and I got these bills. Like, I'm just telling you that that's how you win and you figure that part out. The other part is maybe you're at the wrong table or maybe you're not at the wrong table. You're, you're standing by to be at a table you don't wanna be, a, be at. I would ask you to ask yourself that tough question and if you do A long enough, then 
the opportunity to do B or to change the table that you're trying to sit at, you get smarter. And it's so, like, it's, you can't do one of these things without the other. I think there's a really interesting uh, way to look at this, and I reference a friend of mine, Chris Gillibo's book called Born for This. And I think it's something around, like, how do you decide when to quit? Because I'm an advocate. I, I dropped out of medical school. I better on a career in professional soccer. I, I quit a lot of things in order to do some things that people thought were very strange. So being willing to be, I mean, again, you can't stand out and fit in at the same time. So to me, this, this idea that how do I know when to quit something, you ask yourself two questions. Is it working? And, and do I care? Do I love it? Because if it's not working and I care, keep going. If it's not working and I don't care, get the fuck out. And there's other combinations in there with like, wait a minute, when I, don't care, when, when I love it, it's not working, but I love it, or it's working and I love it, that's, those are obvious. It's just when those two things are in conflict, it's a really good thing. You should ask that about the work that you're doing on any one client and ask that about the seat that you're trying to have at this table that you don't currently get to sit down at. Good? Sorry, I, I swore so many times. No, I'm, I'm really good. fired you. up. No, I think that's Sorry. also a good, uh, you must be exhausted, you may sit. Um, <laughs> I, I think that it's also a good opportunity to look at where we are today, which I uh, did a talk at the 3% conference, uh, and a lot of the questions were, how do we muscle in? You know, how do, we need more women creative directors. We, how do we make decisions? There are more women who are clients, and I, I agree with all that. But if the 3% premise is correct, which I don't believe it is, I think it's more like 10%, which is still 40%, 40%, 1% lower than it needs to be, then it's not about getting a seat at the table, it's about making the table. It's about finding a place today where a woman-owned uh, woman agency is supported, a minority-owned agency is supported. There's never been more demand that I see from the client side from something other than some old white-haired dude coming in with the solutions. It just isn't the flavor of the month right now, and it won't be for a long time. So I don't know if there's ever been a better opportunity to make your own table and to create something with your own rules, and to do something interesting and be really thoughtful about what you want to do, because you clearly have the experience to know how to handle most things. Yeah, it's not your table. Sherry. Well, that's just the perfect segue to my question. You set me up perfectly, Cal. Thank you for that. Um, my name's Sherry, and my question is about mid-career transitions. And so um, I am trying to make my own table. And the problem I want help solving is that I have a really hard time putting on the blinders. So the, the question is about focus, it's about distractions, and it's about feeling disconnected from humanity, really. And so at this conference, there's all these talks about AI and AV and all. Everything all has to have two initials. Two initials, yeah. yeah, yeah. That seems to be the key. VR. So, so we're, supposed to, we're supposed to plug into all this stuff, and it means more time alone in front of a computer and you know, building our content so that we can establish our POV. And I'm having a really hard time putting those blinders on and building my content. And I know that the two of you have this vast library and portfolio of amazingly creative work that had to have come from extreme discipline and focus. And so can you tell me how? What, what are some of your tricks to tune out all the noise, stay connected to the humanity, and produce your work. Totally. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll reiterate uh, stamina a little bit. I mean, the, our body of work, um, 
you probably have seen 10% of my body work and 3% of Chase's, all the work that goes into what everybody gets to see that we are proud to show. Uh, but secondly, I think that because there are so many opportunities right now, there are a lot of distractions and a lot of potential clients and a lot of potential targets. I think that it's never been more important to be unified with the vision of what you want to create and not worry that it doesn't look like you're addressing the biggest opportunity, whether it's fiscally or client-based or uh, target-based. It's what you want to do because that stamina only comes when you enjoy what you're doing. So it really is about staying focused and even taking in information that enriches your thinking around what you want to do versus getting totally caught up in the Stormy Daniels, our president said, lying asshole, misogynist stuff. We just don't have a whole lot of time for that. We all know that's true. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. It's awesome. Um, I support uh, Cal's answer. I also think that the, the, um, there's a great book that I can recommend by a friend of mine named Scott Belsky. He's now the chief product officer at Adobe. He, it's called The Messy Middle. And in the messy middle, it talks a lot about like what we are told, the story that we're sold is that you started a project and then it got really hard and then it just like, everything's awesome. But the reality is it's always going like this. And one day you're like, oh my God, the client's gonna fire me. Oh my God, we just did some great work. And the next day we're running out of money. And then, oh my God, we just got this huge client. And so what you wanna keep is a positive slope. And you, you, the, you phrased your question, I don't know if you, if you thought about this consciously, but what are some tricks? There actually aren't any tricks. It's ruthless discipline, and I would say that the focus part is what's most wildly misunderstood. When you are actually focused on doing a thing, and you do that thing relentlessly until you get an outcome that you like, it's celebrated. No one sees all the other stuff, and I believe that my best work has always come through focus, and the uh, the reality is that people are so busy that with, what they just see is hit after hit after hit when, like, like Cal said, you're actually eating shit a lot of the time. And so to me, if you can focus on a thing and, and build that thing until it's successful, and the reality is like something like psychology said, it's like four to six projects at the same time are actually ideal because if you get stuck on one, you can move to another. But that relentless focus and on all of the other stuff like that truly is just distraction. And I think the distraction, there's this thing that's called, uh, in, in, the, in Scott's book, The Messy Middle, it's basically like um, insecurity work is what he calls it. And I'd say, I am looking at my social feeds, I'm looking at what my competitors are doing, I'm looking at all these things. So I would say number one is cut down on insecurity work and just apply to one or two or three things that you truly care about because that's where your passion is going to be the most successful, the most fulfilled. Um, <laughs> we'll see you over at the B side after this. Okay, we got to keep going. We got we're inside. Yeah, we're, to, oh, we're, oh, we're all time. done. All right, let's time. take all questions over to the B side. If you guys will join us, yeah, I'm, I'll, feet I'll, that way. I will not leave that place until everybody's questions answered. And I mean, there's 200 people in here, so I'll get through it all. If, Agreed. Uh, yeah. So let's go over there. Let's see you over there. Okay. All right, that about wraps it up. But uh, hey, before you bounce, two quick things. Um, actually, I'm going to go three quick things. Thing one, A, thank you so much for being a part of this community. And I'm not quite sure how you, you landed on this podcast. It doesn't matter to me. The fact that we're all in this together and that we're able to have a conversation is awesome. I feel uh, honored to be in your ears right now and that uh, you've paid attention to what I've been doing, what Creative Live has been doing for some time. And whether it's been a day or 10 years, I just want to say thank you. It's also really important to know on the backside of that that I, I 
do a lot of responding to comments. So hit me up, on, you know, direct message me on, on Instagram or Twitter or at me. I try and respond as much as possible. So let's have a conversation that transcends me just being in your ears here. Let's try and do it some, somewhere out there in, on the internet land. That's thing one. Thing two, again, I'm not quite sure what channels you pay attention to me and my work, but please go check out. I'm at Chase Jarvis or slash Chase Jarvis or whatever on all the platforms. And it's really important to me. Also, if you wouldn't mind checking out Creative Live, it's something that not only myself, but 120 other committed hardcore badass people come to work every day uh, to build the place where creators and entrepreneurs learn so check that out they're just slash creative live or at creative live all over out there on the internet all right until again uh, probably tomorrow i hope i'll hear you i'll be in your ears maybe tomorrow and i'll look for your comments on the internets bye